All right, let's take our Bibles tonight, please. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 23. The Gospel of Luke, chapter number 23. I appreciate all the good singing tonight. My heart's been stirred and, and refreshed just by sitting over there and listening to the hymns and the songs of Zion and listening to the people sing about the Lord and the goodness of the Lord. And that last song, There Is a God. No matter what the modernists may say, or the infidels, or the agnostics, there is a God. There is a God. Well, I'm sorry I didn't get to make it last night. We've been having a little physical trouble, but uh, I told a man the other day, I said, there's not one thing wrong with me that one quick trip to heaven won't take care of for time and eternity. And I'm a candidate for a glorified body and looking forward to it. Now, you pray for us tonight as we try to bring the message from out of God's Word, Luke chapter 24, but let's go to chapter 23. I want to read a couple of verses in chapter 23, and then we'll, we'll carry right over into chapter number 24 as we read tonight. Thank you again for coming and being here. Brother Joe said it's a tremendous crowd tonight. I can't see more, no more than halfway back. I can't. I can't see no more than half. I've got bifocals. I guess we're going to have to get trifocals, but... Uh, I can hear you back there if you'll say amen, but I can't see you back there. But uh, you pray for us as we preach tonight. Luke chapter 23, let's begin reading in verse number 50. The Bible said, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewed in stone, wherein never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath day drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after, and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Now notice chapter 24, verse 1. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. Now, that's very important right there. When the ladies came, they were coming to the sepulcher. They had heard that no doubt by now there was a stone that had been placed in front of the tomb of the Lord Jesus. They were in, actually in front of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and they were probably wondering, how will we roll it away? How are we going to move this massive stone? But when they got there, verse 2 said, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. The Bible says in verse 30, And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. It came to pass. Now we have reason. We have reason to see why they ought to be excited. We think they ought to be shouting. We think they ought to be having a hallelujah jubilee camp meeting time. But notice what the Bible says in verse 4. It came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout. You see, when they saw the body of the Lord missing and the stone rolled away, their minds were perplexed. It means to be at a loss mentally. They were totally confused because that's the last place they'd seen the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, his body is missing. 
Well, you say, Brother Buster, didn't they know that the Lord was going to resurrect on the third and appointed morning? Listen to me. No, they didn't. No, they didn't, church. You understand, none of the disciples, none of the apostles, nobody believed that Jesus was going to have to die, much less be buried and raised again on the third day. Now you say, Preacher Seton, are you sure about that? All right, hold your place in Luke 24 and come with me to Luke chapter 18. Read your Bible tonight with me, and I want you to see this. When Jesus hung there and bled and died, this was the last thing and the furthest thing from the minds and the hearts of the disciples. In Luke 18, verse number 31, the Bible said, Then he, the Lord Jesus, took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitten on, and they shall scourge him, and shall put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. Now, how much more plainer could the Lord make it than that right there? But notice the next verse. And they understood none of these things. And these and this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. They never understood that Jesus was going to die on an old Roman cross. What they were looking for was a king who would overthrow the Roman government and set up the millennial kingdom that the prophets had talked about in the Old Testament. But now their world has crumbled in front of them. Their dreams have been shattered. And, and here they're much perplexed. They're standing there in chapter 24 in a total loss. They're confused. The Bible said as they stood there and were much perplexed thereabout, Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, and as they were afraid, that is, the women, and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. All of a sudden, it began to dawn on them. All of the teaching of the Lord Jesus and all the parables and the truths that he had taught them, it began to dawn on them, and they remembered his words and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. Verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with him, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them. Now the women are, are excited, and, and they're blessed by this truth. That, and they tell the apostles, they tell the eleven, the reason there's not twelve, Judas is carried, has already went out and committed suicide. They tell the eleven and all the other people there, but their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Can you imagine that? They're standing there telling them, but we've seen two men and they've told us the Lord has risen and is alive. But nobody would believe their story. Verse number 12, Then arose Peter, that is Simon Peter, 
and ran into the sepulcher, stooping down. He beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. Now that's brought me to where I want to preach from tonight with the help of God, and I know it takes his help and a fresh touch from glory I desperately need. But in verse 13, the Bible said, And behold, behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. Now, for a long time, I never heard anybody deal with these two right here that's mentioned in Luke chapter number 24. I'm sure men have. I'm sure there's been a lot of messages. I just never heard one myself. And here we have two people that leave Jerusalem and they go down to the place called Emmaus. The word Emmaus, they tell us, means in earnest longing. This little city that they were retreating to or going back to means in earnest longing. You say, preacher Seaton, who do you believe these two are? Well, I know who one of them is according to verse number 18 of chapter number 24. And the one of them whose name was Colophus. There's one of them, that's his name. And one of them was Colophus. Now you say, preacher, who do you, is this Cephas? No, not Cephas. It's not Simon Peter. It's nine of the eleven apostles. Now I'll show you that in just a minute. But this man's name is Colophus. You say, well, Brother Buster, who is the other one that's with him? Well, I'd hate to think that two men were living together down at Emmaus, wouldn't you? I'll tell you who I believe it is. And I believe I can prove it to you from the Scripture. I believe the other one was his wife. I believe this was a husband and a wife team, just as sure as we're in this tabernacle tonight. Now, you say, do you have any Bible for that? Just one verse. John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 25, said there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Colophus, and Mary Magdalene. I believe right there is proof enough that that this is Colophus and his wife by the name of Mary. And what I want to preach to you tonight is empty on the road to Emmaus. Empty on the road to Emmaus. Now can you imagine, I want you to step into the scriptures, step into the story that's before us tonight. We're looking at a dark, dark scene. The one they've been following, the one they believed in, they put their trust in. I mean, has now been hanging on a tree uh, for six long hours. He's been taken down, he's been put into a tomb, and he's been laying there dead uh, for three days and three nights. Uh, and now there's a report uh, that's running rampant through the city. The Lord has risen, the tomb's rolled away, uh, and there's been some women that have seen some two angelic messengers, and they're saying that Jesus is alive. But there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion going on right here. And what these two, these two right here in verse 13 did, they simply were disappointed saints. They were so disappointed about what had just happened that, that they picked up everything they had and one of them said to the other, let's just go back down to the house. Let's head on back down to Emmaus and go back home. 
And I'm telling you tonight, across this country, there's a lot of disappointed believers. A lot of people that are disappointed that have been saved by the good grace of God. May I say it like this, that things haven't turned out just like we thought they were going to turn out. And you know that's true for some of us. Uh, man, we had high expectations. Uh, we were believing this and believing that. Uh, but things just haven't turned out like we thought they would. Now, I tell you what that can do to you, friend. Uh, it can bring you to a place uh, of disappointment. Even to the place, and I'm not sanctioning this, I'm not saying it's right, uh, but even to the place of walking away from the sanctuary and that's what they did. They left Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city of God. They left Jerusalem and they're headed down toward Emmaus. Hearts are broken. I mean that their lives are crushed. Their dreams are shattered. And every ray of hope they had has now been torn all to pieces. Do you see them going back down to Emmaus? And they're weeping as they go, they go, and they're having a conversation in verse 14. The Bible said, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. Verse 15 said, and it came to pass that while they commune, the word commune means to talk or to converse, as they commune together and reason. The word reason is a stronger word there. It means to carry the idea of to discuss and dispute and even question what had happened in the days that they had just been through. A lot of people are like that tonight. They're disappointed. If the truth was known underneath this tabernacle tonight, people have come in shaking hands, and somebody said, How you doing? You said the best you've ever seen. And I understand that kind of terminology, but a lot of people in here tonight have broken hearts. Their lives have been broken, as it were, dreams shattered, uh, heartaches on top of heartaches, friend. Uh, and yet, by the good grace of God, we keep trying to go on and go on with the help of God. But they are disappointed saints. You see, I find them. Yeah, if, you listen to, if you listen to some of this crowd, uh, they're having you to believe this, that you should never be disappointed, that you should never be discouraged. They'll say, what you ought to do is just claim the victory and rebuke the devil and say, I've got the victory. Well, I understand a little bit of that, friend. I know we have the victory in the Lord Jesus, but you're foolish if you don't think valleys are going to come into your life and trials and testings and heartaches and hardships come into your life. We're not immune because we're saved by the grace of God. We're not immune. I find this very quickly. I throw this out, hand it out to you. I find that people are very, very disappointed. Some today in their country. Some are disappointed in their churches. Now look here. I know that there's some people in this county and surrounding counties that they can find fault in every Baptist church there is. And they've been a member of about half of them. I've got people like that in East Tennessee where I live in Knoxville. Uh, they've been a member about every church in the county. Here a church, there a church, uh, and everywhere a church, church. I know I have, I know how that crowd is, but there are some people this, the tonight that are legitimately, uh, I mean truthfully, they're disappointed in their church and church leaders and the way things have turned out. 
I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm trying not, trying not to pull this thing down in that way. But you know that's so, folks. You know there's a lot of men that have messed up in the ministry. And, and there's a lot of things going on. And, and there's a lot of God's sheep and God's youngins. That, I mean, I know the Bible said we're not to put our faith and our trust in man. That, but a lot of God's sheep tonight are wandering around, discouraged, disappointed. That's true. I find people disappointed in their church, some rightfully so. Some are disappointed in their country. Some are disappointed in their companions. This is the hardest day on record to keep marriages together. And you better not boast. I mean, tonight I thought about Brother Fleming stepping up here on this platform. And he and I embraced and shook hands and hugged necks. And he said, Brother Buster, tonight's 57 years. You know what the devil would like to do? I mean, at 57 years of being married, uh, the devil would like to cut that wedding band loose on his finger and his... The devil would like for nothing better to get out. And Brother Fleming and Sister Fleming are divorced no longer together. You say that don't happen. You say, that can't. hey, I'm going to tell you something. I deal with people. I've had to sit down and counsel with people who have been married over 50 years. Getting divorces, contemplating divorce. And it's sad. This is kind of ironic. I was preaching in East Tennessee in a certain church. As I was preaching, got through and went to the back of the church. A man came to me weeping and crying. He's older than I am. And I could tell he was, he was broken hearted and I didn't take it lightly. And that man hugged my neck and I hugged his. And he turned around and looked at me and he said, Brother Buster, my wife of 36 years, my wife just up and walked out and left me. And he said, I'm a pastor of a local church. He said, I'm, I'm just, my life's torn all to pieces. I see it in the ministry. I see it in churches. We see it all the time. But for some unknown reason, we think it can't happen to us. It can't happen to me and to my wife. Now hang on to this. Listen, the devil may not be able to get to you and your wife. You may hold your marriage together by the grace of God. But look here, if he can't get to you and your wife, you know what he's coming after? The next thing that's dearest to your heart, and that's your children, friend. I mean, I was taken aside years ago by a preacher, a great, great preacher, a friend of mine. I could call him by name. Some of you might know him. He said, Brother Buster, don't make the mistakes that I did. He, had, he, couldn't, he and his wife couldn't have any children, so they adopted two. And then later in life, she had the first child. They, she had one after they adopted two. He said, boy, I'd drag them around, take them to meetings. meetings. I'd lay them down on little pallets. He said, I'd take them to the camp meetings. He said, I'd pray and say, devil, you're not going to get mine. Devil, I'm claiming mine for God. Hands off, devil, you cannot have mine. He said, my three boys, all three of them broke my heart in a million pieces. Now, you better listen right here. I'm trying to help some of you. Some of you are on a guilt trip tonight. You're wondering, how can this happen? How can this happen to me? I'm a preacher. I'm a missionary. My life's been sold out to God in the church for years and years. How can this happen to me? Now, your children and my children have a will of their own. Do you believe that? And God is not going to override the will of your children no more than he'll override your will. He, did. he doesn't override our will. 
And your children, my daughter tonight, 20 years old, my boy, 17 years old tonight, they have a will of their own. I pray that they never mess up. I pray that they, I don't get a call in the middle of the midnight one of these nights in a motel room, but I know it is a probability. I know that it is a, that it is a possibility because my daughter is flesh and my son is flesh. Are you still with me? I'm going to tell you what happened a few years ago. Most of you know where I'm going right here. But uh, several preachers about 30, 35 years ago took one verse out of the Bible. And they lifted that one verse out of the Bible. And when they lifted it out, it's a true verse. It is inspired. It's inerrant. It's infallible. But you better make sure you're rightly dividing the Word of God. And they took that verse, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child the way that he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And they said that means right there, you train your children upright, you take them to church, you take them to the house of God, you take them to Sunday school, Bible school, and send them to a Christian school, and there's you a guarantee that when they get old, they'll live for God. I just got problems with that. You're not, you're not interpreting your Bible right. Now, some of you, I can sense it tightened up right there a little bit. That's what we've been taught all of these years. Train them upright, rear them upright, bring them upright, teach them right, pray over them, have a family altar, and you ought to do every bit of that. But that is no guarantee. Now, do you have enough? You say, well, Brother Buster, I, I don't believe you're interpreting your Bible right. All right, do you have enough Bible knowledge to tell me who wrote that? Solomon did, didn't he? Didn't Solomon pin that down, train up a child the way he should go, and his old you'll not depart? Yep. Well, don't you think that David and Bathsheba did their dead level best to train Solomon right? Yes. And do you know he was endowed with wisdom far above any other man apart from the first Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ? Right. Do you have enough Bible knowledge to tell me how that Solomon wound up in his old days, in his old age? I got a hold of this one day, and it rather it got a hold of me. First Kings chapter 11, as I was reading my Bible, verse by verse one day, I'd stumbled on this passage of Scripture, and it began to bring light to Proverbs 22, 6, and I began to weep. The Bible said in First Kings chapter 11, page 402, the Bible said, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said in the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon claimed to these in love. He disobeyed the word of the Lord, friend. Do you understand that? That's what he did right there. Well, you say he's the king of Israel. I don't care who he is. Solomon was not right when he disobeyed the word of the Lord. No one is ever right when they disobeyed the word of the Lord. The Bible said in verse 3, he had 700 wives. The Bible calls them princes and 300 concubines. 300. Do I have to elaborate in the Hebrew language what a concubine was? He had 300 women on the side. 
You understand that? I mean, 300 women had women on the side besides the 700 women that he was married to. You say, preacher, what he's doing, he's lengthening his kingdom. He's strengthening the kingdom of Israel. No, he disobeyed God. Watch what happens. The Bible said in verse number three, and his wives turned away his heart. What did God say that they would do? They'd turn away your heart. Look at verse 4. For it came to pass when Solomon was, tell me church, old. Came to pass when Solomon was old. That his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. And you can go on and read this for Solomon. Went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. Boy, you get down in verse number 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which which had appeared unto him twice. And God said, Solomon, I'm going to rend the kingdom right out from under you. I'm going to rend the kingdom. What I want you to see is Solomon, when he was old, went after other gods. So that verse in Proverbs 22, 6 cannot mean what we've made it to say. Hey, you read that chapter, 1 Kings 11. He dies in that chapter, and he never did get right with God. As far as the Scripture's concerned, he never did make it right with God. It's just the truth. Well, I don't care if you kiss when you say amen. No, he never did get right with God. He died away from God. The many women had turned away his hearts after other gods. You say, now, preacher, what about Proverbs 22, verse 6? Is that, does that mean there's a discrepancy in the Scripture? No. It means there's a discrepancy in our understanding and rightly dividing of the Word of God. I really believe, and I've always believed this. I went to some of those, I went to some of those big church things they had a few years ago once or twice, and I didn't like what I saw then and hadn't been back. That's the truth. I mean, I'm just telling you like it is. They had women up there teaching the men and everything else. I just didn't. I was raised different than that, and I couldn't wait for Friday night to come to get to go home. Amen. And one of those certain preachers, and I will not, there's no sense in calling names. None, there's no sense in that, young preachers. I have been, I've been guilty of that. There's no sense in that. But one of those particular men, said many, many years ago. He said, if you if you preachers had a great preacher's fellowship they were holding, he said, if you preachers, if your children go bad, if your son or daughter turns out and they go bad, hang up your ordination, turn in your license, and get out of the ministry. That was before his son messed up and wrecked in a terrible way in the ministry. You better be careful about what you say. Here's Solomon, now an old man. He's away from God. He dies in that condition. You say, what does Proverbs 22, 6 mean? I, I believe it means with my simple mind. I believe it means you train up a child the way that he should go. You train them upright. You do your best. You instill the Word of God. You take them to church. Uh, you raise them around the environment we're in tonight. 
Listen, it does not mean that when they get old, they'll never depart from it. But I believe it means when they get old, they may, get, they may go to Moab, they may go to Babylon, they may go to Egypt, they may wind up, listen, on a bar stool with a needle in their arm and drinking liquor and snorting cocaine. But the longest day they live, they'll never be able to get away from that teacher. It'll haunt them to the graveyard, friend. It'll haunt them through the hog pen. They'll never be able to get away from Some of you out here tonight, you've done your best. You've raised your children the best you know how. And your children are away from God. And I know I've dealt and talked to you, and we've wept together and prayed together. And the devil's trying to tell you, he's told some of you before, you're not fit, you're not worthy. I was preaching in Ohio one time. He got through and got home and got a letter in the mail. This lady said, you've helped me and my husband. She said, we've been members of this church for X amount of years and said our children didn't turn out right. We felt like we was unworthy to be Sunday school teachers. We felt like we ought to step down. And I'm telling you, friend, this is happening everywhere. And I got news for you. We don't know how ours are going to turn out. And you don't know how your grandchildren are going to turn out. So you better be very careful how you say things. Disappointed saints. I have a preacher's call me. Brother Joe does. These other men of God do. I have preachers a lot call me. They said, Brother Buster, you have a little kind. Brother Buster, my daughter just turned up in the family way. Preacher, see, my son just messed up. My son just messed up. I hear it constantly, constantly, constantly. Breaks my heart. A lot of disappointed saints. And I'd be less than honest if something happened to my daughter or my son. I'd be less than honest if I, wouldn't, if I didn't tell you the truth. I'd be a disappointed saint. You let the devil give you an uppercut and a liver shot at the same time, it'll knock the breath out of you. Set you back a few steps. But you know what I see here, and I got to hurry quick and get out. You know, I see here disappointed saints. But I see something else in verse 15 and 16. And it came to pass while they communed together. They're going down that road and they're talking and they're reasoning and they're arguing and they're saying, why did he have to die? And why did God let him die? And why did Judas betray him? Why did Simon Peter deny him? The Bible said it came to pass. And while they communed and reasoned, Jesus himself, Jesus himself drew near, the Bible said, and went with them. Here's a disguised Savior. I mean, he steps out of nowhere. You believe what you want to believe. I believe standing somewhere in the shadows of your disappointments, there'll be the Lord Jesus standing there. Hey, this is the very day of his resurrection. There's so much going on that day. But he sees two of his little sheep discouraged and defeated and heartbroken. And they're headed down to Emmaus. But he takes time to show up. Show up. When he showed up, the Bible said Jesus went with them. 
Verse 16, but their eyes were holding. Now, don't blame them. Their eyes were holding. That word holding means to use supernatural strength. Their eyes were holding and they, that they should not know him. I mean, they don't, they don't even recognize who he is. Mark's gospel said after this, uh, he appeared in another form under two of them. Uh, I mean, he deliberately chose to show up uh, in a different bodily manifestation. He did not look like the Jesus that they'd been following for so many months. He could have stepped out and said, look at my hands. He could have stepped out and said, look at my nail, my spirit riven side. He could have said, it's I, it's I. But for reasons known only to God, he did not reveal himself like that. You know now with Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man got up. I mean, he told Jairus' daughter, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And a dead girl got up. Hey. But here with wounded soldiers, broken-hearted Christians, hurting believers, he takes a different method. And he begins to walk with them. Takes time out to talk with them. And they don't even know who he is. Have you ever been on the Emmaus? Have you ever been on the Emmaus Road personally? And be in a meeting like this, and everybody else is getting help, and everybody else is shouting and being blessed, and you sit back there, and you nod your head and say, I know that's right, but it seems like the Lord's disguised himself to you. Huh? Here they are. But all of a sudden, Jesus starts the conversation. He, he begins to open up this conversation. The Bible said in verse number 18, I believe it is, 17. My Bible's sticking to verse 16. Their eyes were holding. They should not know him. Verse 17, and he said unto them, now, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk in are sad? Why, he knew what they were. They were talking about him. See what he's wanting? Hey, he's not asking for information. He's wanting them to make a confession and tell it to him. Tell it to him. And the one of them whose name was Colophus answering said to him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? He said, Sir, I've never seen you before, and you must be a stranger in Jerusalem. You don't understand what's been going on. He said, And hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days. And he, that is Jesus, who they're calling a stranger, said unto them, What things? I mean, the things that they're talking about happen unto the Lord. He said, What things? And they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet. Let us tell you something, stranger. He was a prophet, and he was mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. They, even though they were disappointed, even though their hearts were hurt, they still believed in him. And they said it ain't turned out just like we thought it would. And it had all done like we thought it was going to do. But let us tell you who he is. He's a prophet. He's mighty indeed before God and all the people. And he said, Now how the chief priests, thy rulers, delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. Here you see disciples that were sad. Verse 17, he started the conversation. Can you imagine as Jesus stepped out from the shadows of nowhere and began to walk behind him maybe? And maybe he said, <clears throat> <clears throat> he said, pardon me, <clears throat> hello, uh, 
I see you're sad. I see you've been weeping. What y'all been talking about? And they began to unfold to him. They said, you must be a stranger, sir. By now, he might have got between them. He might have been standing right in the middle, one on one side, one on the other. Maybe by now, he had him by the hand. He said, well, I'll just walk with you a little way. Y'all just go ahead and tell me your problems. Tell me what it is that's bothering you. And they did. They did. And he listened. He listened. I was reading one day behind no Puritan writer, and that old Puritan writer said, Oh, how blessed it is that God listens to what he already knows about us. When we get down to pray, we're not telling him nothing he don't already know. By the way, Jesus doesn't have a caller ID. Jesus doesn't have one that said, I ain't going to take that, and I ain't going to take that. I took that one twice yesterday. I ain't going to take that today. Oh, no. Oh, every day and every hour we can cry unto him and he'll hear our cry. This guy, Savior, disciples that were sad. I believe they were sad in, two th- in verse 21. These three little words jumped out at me. They said, but we trusted. They said, sir, we want to tell you this. Now, he was a prophet. He was mighty indeed before God and all the people. But may we tell you something, sir? We trusted. But we trusted. Do you hear how I hear them say that? Yeah. But we trusted. Yeah. It's like they felt like they had been let down. Yeah. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, and I love to read behind these men, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan made this statement. And I jotted it down verbatim the way he quoted it. He said, thus we see their attitude. The cross had not destroyed their love for him, nor their belief in him, nor their intention for them. But the cross had slain their hope. In the cross, they saw failure instead of success. They said, sir, we trusted. Have you ever, now listen, have you ever trusted only for it not to have turned out like you thought it would? Sure. I don't know if you can handle this or not. I don't know that I can really handle it or not. They, some of us prayed for the healing of our loved ones, and God did not see fit to heal them. He did. But I got news for you. Heaven holds the healing. Heaven holds the healing. You may have had a baby lie in the hospital for days and days and days and days, and you prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. But it did not turn out like you thought it would. You trusted. You tr- seemingly only to be let down. But you see, we can't understand God's ways. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. That's right. I believe they, tr- they, felt, like, they felt like that the Lord had failed them in his redemption. I believe they felt like that the Lord had failed them in his resurrection. They told the stranger that they said, listen, certain women, certain of them which was with us went to the sepulcher, found it even as the women had said, but him they saw not. They're talking to him who they did not see. Right there he was in front of them. I see here, when they looked at that cross, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan said they saw failure. Won't you listen to me? I don't, we don't hear much preaching on cross bearing anymore. We don't hear much about Christians bearing a cross 
not a redemptive cross, not a, a cross that pays on your redemption. No, sir. But I'm talking about bearing a cross for the Lord Jesus. And by the way, if, it, if the Lord let us pick out our crosses, I'm afraid we'd pick out the wrong ones. We'd pick out the ones we thought we were capable of bearing. This is not original with me. I heard old Brother Phil Kidd, Dr. Phil Kidd, throw this out one night. That got a hold of me. There's unexpected crosses in your life. There's some, time, there's some place along your life you'll be confronted with an unexpected cross. Simon of Cyrene, you remember the story. Jesus is bearing his cross. Bearing his cross. The Lord been whipped, beaten. His face had been mutilated. They'd plucked the hair from it. He's carrying that. I'll not argue whether he carried the cross member of the whole cross. I'll not argue that. But all of a sudden, one of those Roman soldiers reached out and grabbed a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene. Last thing he thought he was ever going to do that day when he got up that morning was bear a cross. It was unexpected in his life. And that brother kid said, probably Simon of Cyrene said, why me? Why am I having to follow this bloody man? Why, why am I having to follow him? And everybody's jeering and all of this. Brother Kidd brought it to reality. He said that unexpected cross drew that man closer to Jesus than he'd ever been in all of his life. Wow. Now that got a hold of me down in my heart. Unexpected crosses sometimes will bring you closer to the Lord Jesus. And every step that, listen, Simon of Cyrene was having to make, uh, there's a bloody footprint already there. The Lord had already stepped uh, in front of him. Somewhere there'll be an unexpected cross in your life. You might even say, why me, Lord? Why this happened to my life and my ministry, my home? Unexpected. I need to close. Verse 25, 26, and 27. We see there's disciples that are sad. It's a seven to eight mile journey down to Emmaus. And the Lord now, they've told the Lord their story. And so the Lord, this stranger, begins to talk to them. Here's the declared sermon. I'll tell you what he did for them. He began to preach to them. He began to take them through an Old Testament Bible survey. That'd be boring to most of us. I'd like, I'd like to have heard this message. You think we know a lot about Bible types? And many of you have uh, Pink's books on different, of the uh, Genesis and Exodus and the writings and things of that. Paul, I mean, many of you have the, t uh, the books about the types and testimonies in the tabernacle by Mr. Weaver. And, and, and we think we know a lot about Bible typology. Well, how would you have liked to have heard the Son of God, the Word of God incarnated in human flesh, give you an Old Testament history lesson about who he was? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You say, what are you talking about? The Bible said, he, verse 25, then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart. You say, boy, right there he is. He's going to blast them. He's going to let them have it. That word fool means right there, lacking in understanding. Lacking in understanding. He said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Jesus to have suffered these things and entered into his glory and beginning at Moses? That means not Moses as a per human being, but Moses as a writer. He pinned down the first five books of the Bible. And beginning at Moses, or beginning at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded in them 
all the all and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I mean, he began to walk them down through the book of Genesis, X. You talk about the tabernacle and types and testimonies. I mean, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the law, the leper, and, and all those things, man. I'm and the Bible said in verse 32, the Bible said, and they said one to another, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened unto us the scripture? Down the Emmaus Road, he took them, and little by little, he began to explain to them and show them how Christ must die and be buried in the third day, rise again from out of the Old Testament. Well, I got to thinking about that. I believe the further they went, their hearts got to pound a little faster. And I'd like to imagine somewhere down that seven to eight mile trail, I'd like to believe Sister Clopas leaned back and touched her husband and said, Honey, I don't know who this man is, but he knows more than any rabbi I've ever heard and sat and listened to. And I believe Brother Clopas leaned back and said, Honey, you know what? I don't know who this stranger is either, but there's something burning right down in here. I mean, when he joined up with us and began to open up the Old Testament Scriptures, something's begin to burn down in here. Hey, you ever had the Holy Ghost open up the Word of God to you? You get the heavenly heart burns. You won't want a rollade or a tagman or a tum or whatever else they got. No, not when you you'll say, let it burn, Lord, let it burn. I don't have time for this, but I went through the book of Genesis all the way to Malachi and picked out some things he might have said about himself all the way through there. But no, but get down here to verse 28 and 29. He's beginning to show them all the way through that Old Testament. Verse number 28, the Bible said, And they drew nigh unto the village where they went. And he made as though he would have gone further. Now there's two ways of looking at this. I believe the proper interpretation is if they had not asked him to come into their little abode, if they had not invited him into the house, he would have walked right on by. Hey, and by the way, if you don't ask him to come in and save you, he'll walk right on by. And if churches don't want his presence, and if we don't invite him to come in and meet with us, he'll walk right on by. But he made as though he would have gone further. There's another way of looking at that. He'll go further than family. He'll go further than friends. He'll go further with you than anyone. And he made as though he would have gone further. The Bible said in verse number 29, but they constrain him. I hear Sister Clopas tell her husband, Honey, don't let him get by. He's making as though he's going to keep on walking. We're at the house. We're down at Emmaus. Invite him to come on in. I'll try to find some bread. We'll try to get some meat together. We'll throw a little, little supper, a little late supper together here. Just don't let him get by. The Bible said they constrain him, saying, Abide with us. Abide with us, stranger. Would you abide with us? It's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. There's the desire of their soul. And I don't know how it happened, but you come to verse number 30. Here's the divine surprise. Would you please tell me if you've got any enlightenment on this? Where'd they get the bread? Where'd they get the meat? I mean, they've been following the Lord for only God knows how long. Several weeks, months. His ministry lasted three and a half years. And they did not have, listen, deep freezes with lamb chops in them to throw into a microwave and nook it and cook it. Uh, I mean, where'd they get the bread? Where'd they get the meat here? 
I only have two logical conclusions. Either Sister Clopas got in the kitchen and began to make bread from scratch, or she went to a neighbor's house and said, I need to borrow a little bread. And maybe Brother Clopas, one way or another, he went out and killed the kid of the goats, began to prepare like they're preparing tomorrow for this barbecue. And Brother Clopas began to cook that meat. If she was making bread, if, let's say she was making some bread, and I don't know about all that you do to make bread. I've just seen my wife make cathead biscuits, you know what I'm saying? And get that dough out there and that flour and stuff. And I used to remember Beck sitting up there beside Barbara, and she'd try that, and she'd look like Casper the ghost. She'd have it all over, you know. And, and Barbara would pat them things out and put them in the oven, and big cat heads would rise up. She'd always make one special for me, that, that big middle one. Huh? Oh, yeah. And I see Miss Clopas in there, and she's making bread. And through the window, she looks up in the starry skies of heaven. And she said, God the Father, I don't know who this stranger is in here. But I sure do want to thank you for sending him our way down to Emmaus. And about that time, Brother Clopas is out there cooking that meat, and preparing that meat, and getting it ready. I see Brother Clopas look up in the same star-studded heaven. And he said, God the Father, I want to thank you for sending this man. I don't know who this man is, but he knows more about the Old Testament than any man I've ever met in my life. And he set my heart afire. About, I see him now. Here's the divine surprise, verse 30. And it came to pass. See, that means there's a lapse of time. As he said it meet with them. He took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. Evidently. Now, here's what I see. The divine surprise. I believe they had the bread laying there. They had the meat laying there. They sat down at the table. Brother Clophus said, Stranger, won't you take meat with us here? Take bread. And we'd like to ask you to ask the blessing. You've been such a blessing to us today on the road to Emmaus. Thank you for showing up and taking time out of your busy day to help us and for opening up the scriptures. And we'd like you to ask the blessing. There's something about this blessing and something about the way he broke the bread that caused them to know who he was. That Bible said, and their eyes were open. As he blessed it and broke and gave to them, their eyes were open. Could it have been, church, that he took the bread? He said, all right, let's pray now. And he said, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And Miss Colophus kicks her husband under the table and said, Honey, I've heard somebody else pray just like that. I remember somebody else I praying just like that. About that time when he says, Amen, he took the bread and began to break it. And when pieces and pieces and pieces and pieces and pieces and the table's full and pieces and pieces and pieces and, and the loaf stays the same size. And Brother Colophus said, I saw them same hands. Take five loaves and two fishes and feed a multitude. And about that time they said, that's him. That's the Lord. That's you, Jesus. That's you. And that Bible said he vanished. He was gone out of their sight. He accomplished the mission to stir up their hearts and revive their souls. The divine surprise. Now what do you think happened? You think Sister Clothus just stood there and said, my, my. Sure was nice him walk eight miles with us. 
So it was nice for him to go all this way out of his way. I got a sneaking suspicion, Sister Clovis. <laughs> Had that little apron got it around up here. said, that's him. That's the Lord. That's him. And Brother Colophus is outside somewhere shouting, that's him. That's him. That's him. He showed up. He showed up. I see him now. I don't know how long they shouted. I don't know how dark it is. But Brother Colophus said, honey, you about ready for bed. She said, who can go sleep with heartburns? For the Bible says in verse 32, the scripture said, and they said one to another, didn't our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, while he opened us the scriptures. And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. It's seven to eight miles back up yonder. Here they go back. And I believe it was different going back than it was coming down. Coming down, they were discouraged and defeated and they were down, but going back. I believe every now and then you could hear her a shouting that she said that right here, honey. He said he was Solomon's rose of Sharon and the lily of every valley. And about right here he said that he's Isaiah's tender plant, his root out of dry ground. And about right here they said he said he was Malachi's refining fire and who'll rise one day with healing in his wings. They had a story to tell, friend. The divine surprise and the delightful satisfaction. Yeah. Went back. When they got up there, guess what? There's a whole bunch of people who couldn't sleep. They rose up the same hour, returned to Jerusalem, verse 33, and found the eleven. See, I told you neither of these two could be the eleven because the eleven, they get up there and find the eleven. Didn't I say that? And them that were with them, there's a whole bunch more besides the eleven them, saying, and it's not Brother Clopas and his wife saying the thing. They just get up on the front porch and they hear somebody on the inside saying something. Saying, the Lord's risen indeed. I bet they thought if you only knew what we knew. And hath appeared to Simon. Now watch this. He appeared to Simon. And the eleven, the Bible said the eleven were there and others. Simon was sitting somewhere over there. I believe tears was running down his face. And I believe Simon nodded his head. He said he did. See, you'll find nowhere in your study of the four Gospels where Jesus appeared to Simon. Don't come to me now in John 21 at the Sea of Tiberias. You've got more than just Simon there. Somewhere this same day. John 21's not the same day. That's good. You let that sink in, you theologians. You deep men. This John 21 is not the same day as Luke chapter 24. And he appeared that day somewhere. And it was so sacred, there's nothing even recorded in Scripture about it. See, he not only appeared unto two that were lonely and discouraged and defeated, but he showed up to one who was a discouraged preacher who'd about thrown in the towel and denied the Lord. And God said, this thing's so sacred right here. I ain't even going to put this in the Bible. Go ahead, son. You and Simon have a good time right here. We're not even going to let this be recorded. See, there's just some things that are so sacred, God doesn't even write them down. There's some meetings you get in that are about so sacred, you can't tell nobody about them. And that's all well and good. we got to close here. I am give out. You're tired.
Tomorrow's coming. But you know what he did early that morning before he ever showed up to two? Before he ever showed up to the one named Simon Peter? Early that morning before he ever went back to the third heaven? Standing outside that tomb while it's yet dark. There was one of those women who would not leave. Mary Magdalene, out of whom the Lord had cast seven devils. She wouldn't leave. She wouldn't leave. And she turned around and she saw a man standing there and she supposed him to be the gardener. He spoke to her twice. She didn't even recognize his voice. See, she was so distorted and so disturbed. He said, woman, why weepest thou? Woman, whom seekest thou? And she said, sir, if you'll tell me where you've laid my Lord, I'll go and get him. If you'll tell me where my Lord's at, I'll go and get him. He, he, he spoke a one-word message to her. <laughs> he said, Mary. Mary. In my mind, I see her reel back. I see her hands go to her head. She said, my mama called me Mary. My daddy called me Mary. Many women have called me and men have called me Mary. Devils have called me Mary. But nobody ever called me Mary like that. She fell down at his feet and she said, Rabboni, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. He said, Mary, don't touch me. Don't touch me. In essence, he said, Mary, I'm getting ready to go back to my father and your father, my God, your God. He said, I saw you down here weeping. I saw you brokenhearted. I couldn't even go back till I come to tell you, it's me, Mary, and I'm alive. You tell him I'll meet him this afternoon down in Jerusalem. Empty on the road to Emmaus, preacher. 